Today on Walk in Truth, we have a guest speaker we affectionately call Coach, Pastor Chris Van Hook, and he's going to be talking to us about having a prophetic worldview. What is that? Well, it is a view. It's living your life in light of the second coming, in light of the day of the Lord. It motivates you to live the right way when you know your Lord is coming and you know that you're going to meet him and there's going to be an accounting for how you lived and what you did. And there's going to be a reward that goes with it. Well, Pastor Coach Chris Van Hook will tell us more today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Let's get right into it tonight. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's where we left off in our Wednesday night study. Um, and as I mentioned, we're going to talk tonight about what Peter's going to teach us on, and that's having a prophetic world view. And you know, we often hear messages from the pulpit that encourage a believer to develop what we would call a Christian worldview, a Christian worldview. And that's a good thing. We should do that, and we should certainly have that. But I think sometimes we have to ask, what does that really mean? What does it mean to have a Christian worldview, or what does it mean to have a worldview at all? Well, I looked this up in the Oxford Learner's Dictionary, and it defines it this way. A worldview is the fundamental cognitive orientation of an individual or society encompassing the whole of the individual or society's knowledge and point of view. A worldview can include natural philosophy, fundamental, existential, and normative postulates or themes, values, and emotions, and ethics. Whoa, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Hey, can we try to make it a little more simple than that? Because I'm a simple guy. And I think a simple way to describe a worldview is that we, we have a filter in which we can sift through information and come to conclusions. And it means that we have a knowledge of truth that we hold that we're certain about. And because of that certainty, we can evaluate and make conclusions about other information that we take in. And we do that to see if we think that other information is accurate or not and how we should act upon that information. So as believers, we're gonna evaluate the information that we get based upon what we know for sure is true. And we can look at the world and have a viewpoint about what is happening in that world. And of course, we do this according to our knowledge of God's word and what it says, but what it says about God, his nature, and his characteristics, plus what it says about man and his nature and his characteristics, and even what it tells us about this world system that we live in. And I would submit to you that as believers, we have a great advantage in understanding what goes on in this world. You know, when we see tragedies happen, as we saw in Florida you know, it's difficult to make any sense of it. But as a Christian, understanding that we live in a fallen world, a world system that's influenced by Satan himself, we are not, or at least should not be, caught off guard. We know 
from Psalm or from First uh, Peter five eight that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And because we know that, Peter says we should be sober of spirit. So you see, the worldview that we have as a Christian can really help us be prepared for the evil that takes place in our world. So your next question might be, okay, then why can't we just have a Christian worldview and leave it at that? Why do we specifically need a prophetic worldview? Well, I have one really, really, really good reason. The Bible tells us to. Isn't that a good reason? And guess what? The Bible itself is a prophetic book. It's full of prophecy that's already been fulfilled, but it's also full of prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. So did you know that next to the subject of faith, that the the return of Christ, the second coming, is the most discussed topic in the Bible? Did you know that? Some scholars would say that it's spoken about or alluded to 1,845 times. Wow. Now, I'd like to say that I took the time this week to personally count each one and make sure that was accurate, but I didn't do that. I'm going to take their word for it. But if that's accurate, and I think that it is, that would mean that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible has to do with end times or second coming. I heard Skip Heitzig say, that means when you do your devotions, read at least 30 verses so you get one of those. (laughs) It doesn't actually work that way, but over the long haul, it does. And that means that one-fifth of the Bible deals with end times or the second coming. Jesus himself referred to his second coming at least 21 times. And I could go on and on and give you lots more statistics to show how full of prophecy this Bible is, but I think you get the picture. So then you might ask, well, isn't a prophetic worldview really just a part of a Christian worldview? And the answer is, it should be. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. In fact, there's a great amount of the church today, as I mentioned on Sunday, there's a great amount of the church today that really ignores prophecy altogether. They don't even deal with it. They don't touch on it. There's another part of the church that though they might not ignore prophecy, they they put a spin on it. And that spin gets it to the point where, where they consider much of prophecy to not be literal but to be figurative. They see it as allegorical. They do not believe in a literal rapture, a literal tribulation period, or a millennial kingdom. Now, I I want you to think about that for a second. If the prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah were to be taken literally, why would the prophecies of the second coming of the Messiah not be literal? Does that make much sense to you? It doesn't to me. And that view actually leads them to a a place where they end up denying that the promises that God made to Israel stand, that they will be for Israel. And that lack of prophetic worldview 
it must have been prevalent at the time that Peter wrote this letter as well because he certainly feels the need to speak on this particular subject. Remember the epistle that we're reading right now, the second epistle of Peter was written about 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So it really didn't take long for the, for the church to get off track. So let's take a look at what Peter's gonna teach us on this subject. So look at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse one. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And that's exactly what I hope to do for you tonight and for anyone who listens to this message on the radio or online. I want the words of the Apostle Peter to stir up your sincere mind. And I believe you have a sincere mind. That's why you're here tonight. Uh, some of the translations say pure mind, but you know, I'm not sure if that was a great translation. I'm not sure we can all say we have pure minds, but I do think we have sincere minds, ones that really want to know what God has to say. And so these ones are directed to stir up your sincere mind to what God wants you to be reminded of. And again, these are, these are not going to be new concepts, but they're so important that Peter said at the very beginning of the letter, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, he said that I need to remind you of these things. And Pastor Michael has been emphasizing throughout this letter that we need to be reminded of the things Peter is saying to us. So verse 2, he says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I think that's interesting. He says by your apostles. He makes it very personal here. So if you look closely, very specifically here, Peter points out two things that we need to remember. The first one, he says, is the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets. See, part of having a prophetic worldview means we need to remember the prophecies spoken by the Old Testament prophets as well as the new. And then two, he says, the commandment, or you could say the teaching of Jesus. And he says that this teaching was being taught by the apostles, and what he means by that is those apostles who were with Jesus. But you'll note, if you go down to verse 15 and 16, you will note, and this is an important point here, you'll note that Peter includes Paul. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12, was he? But Paul spent time with Jesus. When you read his writings and he tells you what he went through, he spent time with Jesus. And Peter acknowledges that, yes, Paul is one of those same apostles and that you are to listen to him as well. And I think that you'll see as we go through this, I think you'll see in context here that Peter is specifically speaking about prophecy that is being taught by the apostles. And he's reminding the readers that they need to regain a prophetic worldview. And he's going to explain to us, as he did to them, why this is so important. So let's read on here, verse three. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So he starts with this, know this first.
Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael. I just want to share my heart for a second. We have a website called walkintruth.com and we've put up a store and we're adding more and more products to it. But one of the reasons I want to get you to that store is that you can partner with us in the ministry. You know, radio airtime costs money and we want to reach more people. If you're being blessed by this ministry, one of the ways that you can partner with us is to go to the website and purchase a product. You can also purchase my book on The Armor of God. I'll get you a signed copy and whatever you give to the ministry will go directly to paying for radio airtime. That's one way you can partner with us. You can help us reach more people like you and you can partner with us in the gospel ministry. It's a great thing. We appreciate you. We love you. Pray for us. We'll keep praying for you. Reach out to us today through the store at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. God bless you. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12, was he? But Paul spent time with Jesus. When you read his writings and he tells you what he went through, he spent time with Jesus. And Peter acknowledges that, yes, Paul is one of those same apostles and that you're to listen to him as well. And I think that you'll see as we go through this, I think you'll see in context here that Peter is specifically speaking about prophecy that is being taught by the apostles. And he's reminding the readers that they need to regain a prophetic world view. And he's going to explain to us, as he did to them, why this is so important. So let's read on here, verse 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So he starts with this, know this first. And the word for know here is protos, and it means an order of importance. So what Peter's saying here is in order for you to understand the rest of what I'm going to talk about here, you need to get this first. That's how important it is. And he says you need to know that in the last days, mockers or sometimes translated scoffers, will come. Interesting, the word for mockers literally means would make sport of. In other words, these people are going to come and they're going to make sport of this whole idea of the second coming of Christ. But let's step back here for a second. We need to define terms so that we know what we're talking about here. He says, in the last days. So what's the meaning of that term, in the last days. And I think this is extremely important for you to understand prophecy correctly. So turn, if you would, to Acts 2.14. Acts 2.14. <clears throat> the believers, following the instructions of Jesus, were gathering on the day of Pentecost. And they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come and to do them with power, as Jesus said that he would. And the Holy Spirit did come, and he came upon them in an amazing way. Uh, verse 4 says that they were filled with the Spirit, and they spoke in languages then that they didn't know. Imagine if you were there, and all of a sudden, you spoke in some language like Italian or French, something that you didn't know. This is what took place. 
those languages were known by other people who were there, people who had come from all different kinds of places. And they understood these men speaking in their tongues, and they went, wow, how's this happening? Those guys don't know our language. Why are we hearing them in our language? And what was being spoken of was the mighty deeds of God. And so these people heard it in their own language, a miraculous event because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter then is going to take the time to explain exactly what happened on this day. And I'm not going to read it all to you, but I'm just going to read a few verses here so that you get the idea. It says in verse 14, but Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. That's kind of what they thought was going on. For it is only the third hour of the day, too early for guys to be drunk. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so he then goes to quote Joel here in verse 17. And Joel had said this, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, so on and so forth. And you can read the rest of that for yourself. So you see here that this term last days actually started on this very day of Pentecost not in the 1970s like a lot of people believe. A lot of people think, oh, the last days. Yeah, that was the 70s, you know, the, the whole Calvary Chapel movement. No, no, no. Peter is very explicit here. He says what's happening here today on Pentecost is exactly what the prophet Joel spoke about. This is the beginning of the last days. And you know, the fact that there were already mockers at the time Peter wrote this second letter, only 30 years later, reinforces the fact that they were already in the last days. You see, the thing is, we have this idea of you know, the time frame of the last days. So far, the last days, for our accounting, has been about 2,000 years, just, just a little under. So he says, the last days have begun. Now, this term, last days, it's really just a way to describe a time period a time period in which God works in specific ways to accomplish specific things. That's what this term is all about. And one other term that would be used to describe the same thing would be called a dispensation. How many of you have heard that word? Dispensation. Not that many. And that's interesting because you guys are Bible students. What would be a dispensation? And right now it's interesting that even the term dispensation gets mocked today by some believers, especially believers in one particular movement. They mock the whole idea of dispensations. There is no such thing. Well, I beg to differ with that. The Bible certainly teaches that there are different periods of times in which God will accomplish specific things and work in specific ways. So let me ask you this, or anybody who would deny dispensations, would any Christian deny that we are today in the age of grace? Would any Christian deny that? No, you ask any Christian, are, are we under the law or are we under grace? Oh, we're under grace. I like that. Yeah, it's the age of grace. Well, the age of grace means we're in a dispensation of grace. That's all it's talking about. Would any Christian deny that in the Old Testament, 
At times, the Holy Spirit came upon people. But in today, for a Christian believer, he works differently because he doesn't just come upon people, he dwells within people. Amen? So it's a different way of working in a different time period. The word age is just really a synonym for a dispensation. And if we're going to have a prophetic worldview, and not just a prophetic worldview, but one that interprets prophecy correctly, we have to understand that there are time periods in which God works in specific ways for specific reasons. Now, different scholars break these dispensations or time periods down differently, and I had a real long one here from gotquestions.org. And they broke it into seven different dispensations or time periods or ages. I'm going to give you my take on it. Not that it's any better, um, but it's a little bit simpler. I see it this way. I would say that the first time period, age, dispensation would be creation to the flood. And then I would say number two would be the flood to the patriarchs where you had the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And then I would say the third one is that group of patriarchs arcs to the Mosaic Covenant, which was what? The law, the age of the law. And then the age of the law, or the Mosaic Covenant, to the time of the church, which is now the age of grace. Pentecost, the last days. And then I would say the fifth one is the church, the age of grace, the age of the church, up to its removal from the earth at the day of the Lord. Now, where you can disagree about some areas of when the day of the Lord begins or not, but there is a time period, the age of grace, before the church, while the church is still on earth, before it's removed. And then there's the time of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, which some people consider the day of the Lord all the way through the millennial kingdom. Some people don't. <clears throat> I don't think it's that important. I really don't. But I think you can see that if you were to break those down and look, you could see that, yeah, God worked a little bit differently in each of those time periods. And Peter is saying that in this age, the age called the last days, there will be those who mock the prophecies of the return of Christ. And remember, he's been writing about false teachers throughout this letter, right? And those false teachers were not just people outside the church. Remember Pastor Michael said, they are inside the church as well. And I think he's saying the same thing right here. And I could certainly say that there are people in the church today who mock the return of Christ. What a sad statement. So what are these people saying? Well, they're paraphrasing it. They're going to say, hey, come on. People have been saying for years and years and years that Jesus was going to come and it hasn't happened. They've been saying it for 2,000 years, and it hasn't happened. And they've been saying it a lot since the 1970s, and it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. Why do they do this? What's their motivation? Well, Peter tells us. He says it's because they want to follow their own lustful desires. What he's saying by that is they really don't want God getting in the way of what they want to do. And think about it. If they believe that Jesus was returning soon, and if I believe that, hey, I might want to get ready for that. And it, it means I might have to change some of the things I do and the things I say and the way I act. But they didn't want that. 
They wanted to follow their own lustful desires. Now in verse 4, it says that these mockers make an argument. And their argument is this. All continues as it has from the beginning of creation. All continues. In other words, everything remains the same, just continues on as it has from the beginning of creation. Now, I find it really interesting. Do you realize that that's the same argument that evolutionists use? It's their basic foundational principle. Anybody know what that's called? It's called uniformitarianism. Everything has uniformity to it. All things just remain the same. And so much of the bad information that they pour out there is because they start with this. Would this be correct, Professor Joe, a presupposition? That everything remains the same from the beginning. Now, they wouldn't say from creation, but from whatever happened, their Big Bang or whatever they're thinking these days. And they would say it stays the same. Now, why do they say that? Well, because they say, from observation, what we've seen, we've never seen some major event that would cause things to be different. It always just continues the same. Now, that's interesting. I mean, how long have they been around? You know, we're, you know have you, are you 10 billion years old, like you say the whole earth is, or whatever it is these days? I don't know, it's 500 billion, whatever. How do you know that? And what they're really saying is that they just, cannot observe this, so they believe that it must have always been that way. But Peter has something to say about this in verse 5. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You see, Peter will use the creation of all things by God and the destruction of all things by the flood that God sent to disprove their position that all things continue in the same way. Now, let me explain a little bit because it may be a little confusing there. If you go to Genesis 1-2, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis 1-2, I think that'll help you to understand this. Where he says the earth was formed out of water, you might wonder about that. Well, Genesis 1-2 says this, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the what? The waters. And so I believe that's what he's speaking about here. Now, there are some people that would want to go back and uh, teach on the gap theory and all that, and there's, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, but we don't have time for that tonight. But I think what he's talking about here is the earth was formed out of the waters as the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then he says, by water, meaning the flood, the earth as it was was destroyed and then reformed by God. Hey folks, I'm excited to tell you about another way that you can connect with Walk in Truth. Download the Radio Scribe app and search for Walk in Truth. There you'll find a lot of cool resources. You'll be able to listen to messages. You can access devotionals and you can partner with Walk in Truth and help us reach more people. Download the Radio Scribe app, search for Walk in Truth and find a lot of cool resources there. I know it'll be a blessing to you. God bless you. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. 
You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.